I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. This program concludes a three-part series on the ideas of Norwegian criminologist Niels Christie of the University of Oslo. It's called Crime Control as Industry, after a new book by Professor Christie which warns against the spread of a system of crime control in which ethical questions are suppressed and efficient management supplants justice. Taking as his starting point the extraordinary increase in the number of prisoners in the United States, there are now more than a million Americans in prisons, four times as many as there were 20 years ago, Professor Christie asks whether this tendency might spread to other countries and large concentrations of prisoners come to be seen as a normal part of the social landscape. Unemployment is growing. The ideals of the welfare state no longer command the consensus they once did. And the crime control industry produces jobs, investment, and social control. Under these circumstances, he wonders, won't citizens be tempted simply to accept the warehousing of unwanted people in prisons and duck the ethical issues involved in inflicting such pain? In last week's programme, Nils Christie demonstrated that the number of prisoners a given country holds is not just a reaction to crime. It also reflects the moral and intellectual climate of that country. His native Norway, for example, has less imprisonment without less crime than many comparable countries. And he argued for an independent judiciary, able to balance the state's interest in the efficient management of crime against the ethical questions involved in the administration of justice. In this final program, he talks about alternatives to imprisonment, about why justice is the responsibility of all citizens, about law as a cultural institution, and about his reasons for describing imprisonment plainly as the purposeful infliction of pain. Crime Control as Industry is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1981, Nils Christie wrote, in English, a work called Limits to Pain. By that time, he had written a number of books in Norwegian, but an unhappy experience with translation had persuaded him, in this new work, to address English readers directly. This is how he began that book. Imposing punishment within the institution of law, he says, means inflicting pain, intended as pain. This is incompatible with esteemed virtues, like kindness and forgiveness, but this incompatibility is usually hidden by rationalizations or euphemisms. Sometimes, he continues, pain is disguised as treatment, but this attempt to manipulate the offender is unreliable and often produces new injustices. At other times, punishment is accounted just when it is made to fit the crime, but attempts to ascribe a just measure of pain to each criminal act result in rigidity and insensitivity. These are the two poles, he says, between which penal theory and practice usually oscillate. My own view, he concludes, is that the time is now ripe to bring these oscillatory moves to an end by describing their futility and by taking a moral stand in favor of creating severe restrictions on the use of man-made pain 
as a means of social control. This view also animates Nils Christie's current book, Crime Control as Industry. How this view came to be and its implications for the administration of criminal justice are the themes of tonight's program. Nils Christie is a professor at the University of Oslo, which forms one side of a great public square in the center of that city. On the other sides are the Parliament, the Royal Palace, and the National Theatre, fronted by an imposing statue of Henrik Ibsen. I visited him there recently and recorded several conversations with him in his office at the Institute of Criminology. The Institute is part of the Faculty of Law, and this situation, he told me, by requiring him to address his law colleagues and not just his fellow sociologists, had fostered in him habits of clarity and plain speaking. You have to take away all sort of mystifications, the sort of clothing that are customary within your specific uh, science, and say it plainly, because lawyers are not interested in sophisticated uh, sociological terminology. So they forced me to talk in plain language. They continued to talk their legalistic language. So we had also to understand that. But uh, we were forced out of uh, uh, this special language of sociology. And I'm very happy that I was, because I don't think I need that special language for any problem of the type I would like to work with. Was the resistance of your law colleagues uh, limited to the language of sociology, or do you think, in a way, also to the approach? No, I think they could rather enjoy that approach. I felt great acceptance from this faculty of law. Of course, I've been a terrible disappointment, because they wanted a criminologist as one who could be in a helping position to explain crime, and then they could continue as usual. But we haven't been very helpful in explaining crime, but we got soon more interested in explaining the system of sanction and to understand that system rather than crime. And they have also troubles with a lot of the critique coming from my colleagues and from me. In the Norwegian society, the faculty of law have always been very, it has been an important faculty. It's a useful faculty seen from the state point of view. They give lots of advice to those who run the country. While I have been in the position that people very rarely have asked for my views, and when I come with my views, uh, they will find it very often impractical or that I r directly say things that makes it more complicated to run the country. For example, the difference between males and females. It is quite clear that a lot in the upbringing of females gives protection against acts that later is, are seen as criminal. So a good preventive device would be to bring up boys more like girls. Uh, it's obvious, but uh, it's not very practical. It would be seen from uh, authorities' point of view, even though I don't think it is so terribly impractical. It should give us food for thought that 
maybe some of the criminal excesses have to do with the, the training into masculinity. Another simple uh, statement would be that nearly all people in prison are very poor. So maybe you should see to it that people were not that poor, that they were not poverty-stroking. Again, you can see that uh, the advice is not easy to convert into action. And then a third example would be this belief in treatment. If the whole system of sanction is seen as not giving away intended pain, but as measures with the intention of helping those receiving these measures, it simplifies the task. So to deliver pain under the disguise of being treatment is very much more comfortable to the judge. We are also troublemakers in the meaning that we are claiming that the law people tend to be too close to the state, so close that they forget some of the important luggage they should have in respect for values in balancing values, in see to it that justice was taken care of. And justice and management are not always in peace to each other. So since the law people, particularly penal law, has been so close to the administrative perspective, they tend to be too willing to be assistance in the state's control of deviance. And in this situation, it was in a way an empty chair. Nobody took care of this balance of values. And we were still very close to those who were supposed to take care. So paradoxically, I think we have ended up, the social scientists among us here, at the Faculty of Law of the University of Oslo, we have ended up with uh, again and again pointing out uh, ethical questions while uh, the um, law people have to a large extent become uh, managerial in their thinking. The university stands here facing the parliament and the palace and the yeah. National Theatre, a very substantial institution. Yeah. Uh, was this tradition of service to the state that you mentioned amongst the law faculty mm -hmm. typical of the rest of the university or did you have a tradition of independent scholarship and critical scholarship to take a stand within yeah i think the tradition is very much influenced by a norwegian sociologist wilhelm Aubert. Mm -hmm. he also was a member of this faculty of law working in a way in opposition to the law uh, tradition. He was a lawyer by education, but a sociologist by um, experience. And he uh, was also underlining uh, the necessity of freedom vis-a-vis -vis the social systems he described. It's a sort of literary style. And I think um, the Norwegian sociology has been uh, very much influenced by this, partly because we are provincial, in the meaning that uh, we have not been tied to the international sociology, to that terrible 
extent that they have been important enough as reference groups. And then belonging to small societies, four million people in this country, you have to express yourself so that some other people can understand you. You can't write for your colleagues. So to a large extent, we come into that tradition to write so that ordinary people could understand us. But I have to add that this tradition is to a large extent gone now. The new breed of sociologists seem all to have been socialized into the American uh, professional uh, scientific style and write in ways that do not uh, make me completely enthusiastic. I want to be understood. Uh, and my advice to my students is that they should never write with their colleagues in mind. Uh, nor should they write to their uh, best friends or eventually lovers, <laughs> because they are too close to them. And they will often have a secret language. But they should uh, write to some of their favorite relatives, favorite aunt, I try to suggest, because they will be interested enough to start reading. Uh, but then you have to keep them. And uh, then you have to drop very much of your jargon. And your decision to start writing in English at the beginning of the 80s when you did Limits to Pain yeah. was to try and preserve this style, but to address a bigger audience than you could in Norwegian. Is that right? Yeah, I wanted, uh, in a way, to get some of these ideas to some other people. Yeah. And it is so dissatisfactory to be translated. It was never my language. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't stand it. So then I decided to do it in my own way. I think it has been very helpful when you have worked for a long time in a field to change language because it makes you able to perceive the phenomena again with new eyes and in your struggle with carving out the words, the concepts. You have to think a lot and suddenly you get new experiences when you realize that maybe English do not have that language or what is it, what, what sort of strange words do they really operate with? And you get a new perspective on uh, what it is all about. And maybe particularly, it is not so easy to cheat in a foreign language. I am a relatively good writer in Norwegian, and I can, through formulations, do it a bit too easy for myself. But in English, I am handicapped, and uh, I have to be more serious. I try to say in one of these books that England has, in a way, lost their language by their uh, imperialistic policy. They have forced us all to use that language, okay, then it's a part of me to use that language, and I want to use it in my way. Because our language, at least the language I write in Norwegian, is much more, it will have shorter sentences, it will be, I think, more forceful than some of the more academic English yeah. that I meet in many books. It's maybe a slight uh, inheritance from the saga style short, very strong, punctual.
So it's a rhythm I like very much to write in, and it makes it again easier to follow, I think, for most people when uh, the sentences are short and you can, in a way, rest in each sentence. What were the experiences that led you to begin to speak so frankly to your law colleagues about pain, to say to them that rather than giving service to criminals or giving treatment, they were, in fact, delivering pain as you state very plainly in your writings. Yeah, it had very much to do with the closeness to the receivers of that pain. I happened at a relatively early stage to come close to people with severe alcohol problems. And uh, slowly I understood that their perception of what happened to them was extremely different from the perception the official society had on what happened. What the society called treatment and what the society in a way got away with by calling it treatment. That was perceived by the receiver as very severe punishments. And I made a systematic study of this. I went to prison and I, before people were sentenced and asked them in a systematic way, what do you expect to get and uh, how do you like it? What would you give yourself if you were your own judge? And then it turned out that the thieves, they both understood what sort of sentence they would get and they would also give themselves if they had happened to be the judge and knew all circumstances in the case. They would have given themselves the same sort of punishment that they expected they would get and actually that they in reality got. So they were realistic. They, they would sentence themselves to a bit less just for old case of old friendship. But by and large, it was an acceptance of the punishment. But when I then interviewed people waiting for this special treatment, or um, people who were consuming liquor in the streets or were drunk in the streets, etc. And that at that time, this treatment was a very, very harsh stay on the West Coast in a very closed institution. Uh, these people, they were aware that this would happen to them, but they found it extremely unjust. That was in between the two world wars and up to 1960 in particular. Then we abolished uh, as a result of this critique from me and from many others, this uh, sort of treatment. It was clear that these skid rows who were put into institution called treatment institutions, if you said in plain words what it was all about, then you could in a way not uh, keep on with this arrangement. It was an arrangement only possible uh, under the disguise, you call it, under the cover of being seen as something relatively uh, neutral or pleasant or helpful to them. But then, of course, this very same tendency is also appearing in the core area of penal sanctions as well. Because in a welfare state, and after all, we are still belonging to that family of states, it is problematic to intentionally hurt people. So we don't like it. So even if we don't call it all treatment, we try to gloss over the brutal, 
painful character of what is going to happen with these people. And this becomes clear when it is torture or flogging or capital punishment. That is pain. We can see it. But of course, imprisonment is also pain. And even a fine is intended to hurt. And then uh, the dilemma is there. Should we say it in plain words, what it is? Or should we use the more technical words? And then, in my view, it is the best thing to use the plain words. You are more inhibited when you know, when you can see what it is about, than when you hide it in technicalities or in the legal language. It is therefore I have very intentionally used the word pain. And I use the terminology prisoner, while in the official terminology uh, the person is called an inmate. And I call the cell a cell, while in the Norwegian terminology the guard is called servant, and the cell is called room. And the punishment cell is officially called single room. So it's a sort of single room treatment to be in that punishment cell. I think it is important to see what, it go what goes on to in a way limit the punishing hand into a realistic punishment. One that might be in accordance with the cultural norms of the society. But there is a danger in this. And this danger is apparent in some movements in the international arena. Namely, if you say very frankly what is going on, and if you take away the treatment ideology, and that treatment ideology has been taken away in very much of the prison discussions all over, then you might say, okay, if we are not treating, and if we plainly are hurting, well, maybe it is acceptable to hurt. Maybe only the brutality is left. So, with the prison development in uh, some countries, particularly the United States, I'm afraid that some of the brutality in the system now increases because even the pretension of treatment the pretension of doing something good is taken away, so you can really, you can as well be nakedly brutal. The fear that naked brutality will prove acceptable is the moral heart of Nils Christie's new book, Crime Control as Industry. As treatment was unmasked as unjust and ineffective, he says, it tended to be replaced by a philosophy sometimes called just desserts. It holds that punishment is punishment, and cannot justly be prolonged by the paternalistic claim that it is actually therapy. Punishment instead should be precisely tailored to the crime, so that everyone knows where they stand and what they can expect. This philosophy is now embodied in the sentencing table produced by the Federal Sentencing Commission in the United States. This table eliminates judicial discretion by specifying the appropriate sentence in advance. In Nils Christie's view, it has amplified political influence, disguised pain as even-handed justice, and oversimplified the application of law. 
you cannot look away from all the circumstances around the person who have acted. And if you press this idea of just desert into a form where you can measure exactly the badness of the act against the suffering he's supposed to receive, then you have left some old-fashioned humanistic tradition. And you have also constructed a social system that is very tempting and easy for parliamentarians or for the politicians to manipulate. And you get situations, as in the United States, where, in my view, the penal system has completely lost its brakes, and where that country incarcerate such an enormous amount of its population that uh, it comes close to calling it uh, gulags of the Western type. Nils Christie's book, Crime Control as Industry, has for its subtitle the question, Towards Gulags, Western Style? Beginning from the axiom that crime in modern societies is an endless resource, it paints a frightening picture of what might happen if the control industry were given a free hand to exploit this resource. And it argues persuasively that this has already begun to happen in the U.S., where the war on drugs, deep-seated social divisions and a lack of paid work have combined with the politically captive judiciary and the attractive business opportunities afforded by high-tech prisons to produce a rapid expansion of the control industry. All that limits and stands against this tendency, in Christie's view, are certain cultural inhibitions, and where it still exists, the belief that the actions of the state are the responsibility of all its citizens. In the final analysis, uh, I have no other hope than a sort of a belief in looking at conditions in a society as a cultural problem and looking at, um, the, at the system of, of crime control as one representing me and then asking both my own population and government but also the United States since I feel very close to that these United States, I mean, do we, do they feel that this is a picture we can live with? I tried to use the picture of the National Theater just across the street here, is in a way representing me. And if it didn't exist, I would feel bad. It is not necessary, but we ought to have a National Theater. And there are things in my society that makes me shameful. And the prison population is such one such indicator. At present, we have uh, 2,500 prisoners. We could, of course, have 25,000 prisoners. It wouldn't change the crime situation very much, according to my views. But I wouldn't like to know we had it. 
But we could have 250,000 prisoners also. But I would increasingly get unhappy. I would feel that they represented me. The gulags represent me, just as Henry Gibson does. And this has not to be seen as a technical problem. It's a choice. Does the existence of prisons and the prospect of imprisonment deter crime? It is a complicated uh, question. I would say, if nothing happens, some more people would do something. But if what happens is three or six years of imprisonment, or six years or life, these are differences which probably have no consequences for the crime situation. No, I can very well understand, and I feel it myself when crime is committed, that something ought to happen. It ought to be a ritual. Someone ought to say, shame you, particularly if you bring the victim into it. The victim must have a chance to express his anger. Um, so it's important not, not to stop it. In the same way as I would say in a rational society, we wouldn't stop having funeral uh, f funeral uh, rituals i'm not against delivering blame but how could you create a scale where these evil acts should be compensated with that particular piece of delivery of pain i think it is an ideal to try to civilize this whole process not necessarily put it into the framework of penal law, but to the utmost extent put it into the framework of civil law. And talk about compensations, talking about doing wrong thing right, correcting things, uh, discussing it in boards where you try to solve conflicts. The Mennonites in the Canada are very interested in this and try to do this very much between offender and victims and use as peaceful mechanisms as possible. But part of that is then to let the victim come into the process, but also to let the offender expose himself in all his complexities as a human being, and not only as an actor of that one evil act. So again, it's a question of humanism in this. We must be very, very careful not to adapt the penal process into modern management. Maybe we ought to have time, maybe the courts ought to be a bit old-fashioned, maybe uh, we should let a maximum of consideration come into the court situation. It is not necessarily an ideal that justice is swift, and simplified. You can see this in a lot of anthropological studies, how court proceedings takes lots of time. But the time is important to give the participants a picture of what is happening. Okay, so there's another side then to this sort of bleak house picture of a, of a fog-bound judicial <laughs> system that moves yeah. at the speed of a snail. Yes, you have to raise this basic question. What sort of institution is the legal institution? Is it a part of management? 
Should it be organized as an efficient firm? Or should be it be organized as a cultural institution? And how would you do it if it was a cultural institution? How to see to it that the population got a sort of impression of what happened? How to see to it that it was not uh, occupied by the experts who in a way stole the conflicts and made it into a technical thing? Uh, how to uh, let uh, the procedure really be one where the participant got sort of personal responsibility for, for what happened. When you say make it a cultural institution, mm -hmm. what that says to me is is make it a, a vehicle for primary, the primary concerns and emotions yeah. of the people involved. Is that more or less what you mean? Yeah. Could it be anything more important than that those who had been hurt got a chance to say so? and that those who had been hurting them would really listen, would really have to explain why they did it, and really hear what other people thought about it. That's the important part of the procedure. And then, what sort of suffering? It turns out, it's a very, very common experience, uh, that when you have lay judges, and most systems have lay judges. They are very often extremely principally very angry at offense, offenders. And they have strong views on what ought to be happen to offenders. And then they are asked to, to participate in a court case. And they sit there for days and listen, get to uh, hear everything in the case. And then they have to decide on the punishment and then they come out with a very, not very angry punishment. And you ask them, well, aren't you so uh, much uh, in favor of pain? And they would say, well, in general, I am. But you see, in this particular case, knowing all the circumstances, this is, was quite an exceptional case. And my point is, of course, that all cases are exceptional. And if you really see the total complication in cases, you build in some very strong inhibitions against delivering pain. And that's fine. One of the trends, particularly I think again visible in the United States that concerns mm. you, is the privatization. Yeah. Why is that? Or perhaps I should say first, what is it? <laughs> well, it is a privatization on several levels. First, for the state and federal system. Of course, a lot of private firms deliver prison. They build prison. They deliver commodities, etc. That is one form of privatization. But the real issue is most sharply brought up on the private prison. Logan is a, an American who has published a book on, uh, on it. And um, this is up to now still a sort of minority phenomena. There are a few private prisons in the United States and also some activity uh, in England, but not very much. But it, it is the extreme case, and therefore very interesting to follow. And it is a strong pressure in that direction. And in all these cases, both private delivery to the state and federal prisons and the private prison in itself, 
in my view, uh, is a driving force towards expansion of the system. You get private lobbying for prisons, uh, and you get private capital interest in uh, building more prison, in expanding that, that system. And uh, I think it is a good thing that it is not too easy to build instruments designed for pain. I am also against private prison by another reason mentioned earlier, namely the cultural aspect. I want a prison where that particular society feel that it is my prison, but it is also my responsibility, that prison. A private firm can, in a way, it's not my it's not my mistake that they mismanaged that prison. But if it is is a bad prison, and the same with the private police, I want it to be a state identification with the system, and with the police. Uh, the argument for this can be seen from history. I think I'm rather happy that certain of the state police systems uh, in Nazi Germany. They went down with the political system. The Eastern German system, the Stasi, is discredited as the state is. While, again, back to the Nazi experience, some of these firms who served in cooperation with the concentration camps, they survived. The private firms survived uh, and are open to service for the next regime. I think it is important that uh, citizens should feel a personal responsibility for phenomena of so, so vital to the health of the nation as the penal system and the police system. As yet, few private prisons. But Nils Christie finds the prospect plausible because it dovetails so nicely with other popular prejudices. Private police already greatly outnumber public police forces. And if the administration of justice is essentially a managerial problem, then surely private firms would manage more efficiently. In our society, where production is seen as important and where free enterprise is seen as a solution to many problems, then this institutional production, a factory or the big firm, the big shops, they are seen as model of how things ought to be done. And uh, I think much of the critique directed towards the judiciary is a sort of critique that they should be efficient. But the courts are not an additional example of a firm. The courts have quite different tasks. They are there to open for conflicts, to balance uh, values. And they are arrangement for uh, ethical debates, not for production. So it is completely wrong to evaluate them according to standards for the evaluation of Volvo 
or sub or Norwegian hydro. And the same with the university. We, we are no shoe factory. We cannot easily be evaluated because it isn't clear what we are for. The directors of universities and the administration try now more and more to regard us as if we were factories. But uh, they are so wrong and they make our systems so much damage by treating us in that way. Even scientists try to talk in ways they know administrators like. They even try to quantify the importance. It is something called the quotation index. And they try to rate uh, scientists according to how often they are quoted in scientific journals. And any but with some experience knows that the number of quotations will very much depend if you are liked by your colleagues. How many do you have for dinner and where do you place yourself in the social network? So it's a silly way of doing it. We do also try to adapt by having different salaries for different people. Those performing most should get the highest salary. And again, I think it is such a, an attempt to adapt to business life. But who could have the criteria for what is the best person? I think uh, we should reserve ourselves against popularity gains. It's interesting in this way that courts are among the most archaic of institutions, that they, perhaps one of the few remaining institutions that still at least partially reveals its ritual origins. Yes where oaths are still administered, where aspects of tournament are still <laughs> visible, mm. which, which argues, I think, in the same direction, that these were and should remain cultural expressions. Yeah, but I'm, I'm glad you add it ought to, um, because we can then see very, very strong tendencies in certain countries in the direction that uh, the courts adapt to uh, the managerial form and this simplified sentencing system that are administered through these uh, commissions with guidelines for sentencing in the United States, both at the federal level and within several of the states, is a very alarming uh, indicator that the courts are nearly of no importance anymore. The pictures you get from the television is, of course, that the court still exists in the old-fashioned way. Sort of jury and all these uh, pompous things. You can see them on television all the time. But in reality, it is not done like that. And it is a source of great concern to me that that country, which has this enormous increase in prison figure, is at the same time then a country where the politicians are more directly influencing the punishment process than in any other country I know of. There could hardly be a more potent symbol of both patriarchy and the remains of aristocracy than the white male judge. Mm. Mm. And yet you're saying on the other hand that without a certain independence mm things could be a lot worse, yeah. that, that, uh, that justice under political control could be a far more frightening thing still. So in what direction then 
do yeah. solutions lie for you? Yeah, my first point is this point of civilizing the process. Get as much as possible pressed back to civil procedure. Rape is a one example. The feminists are far from in agreement that this ought to go to the penal courts. Many feminists, and I agree completely, think it should be better going to the civil courts where you use, the, where you claim compensation for rape rather than punishment. The sort of potentiality for rapists around is uh, it's an endless supply of possible uh, violence towards other people's body. So uh, it doesn't help very much to put some few rapists in prison, particularly since after a while they are bound to go out again. And here some catastrophes will always appear, and we have no instrument to tell who will do it again. That, that is a very certain insight, that we are not good in predicting who will continue to be dangerous. So you could then have the ethical view that, well, everybody who have raped should be in prison forever. Okay. I, since if you do not share this view, you have to let them out again. And, uh, and then uh, the point is to do it so decent as you can and uh, also maybe uh, to create a situation while they are in prison that is not deteriorating their situation. But basically, so many other things we can do if we want to protect females. I mean, Christ centers, places where you can go when you feel that your man would be in dangerous to you. They are, of course, of extreme importance in preventing violence against females. The question of uh, liquor is a vital one, at least in the Scandinavian culture, when it comes to violence in the street. And we know that the population that particularly both end up as offenders and victims of violence, that would be relatively young males who are relatively bad off socially. So again, then it's a question to give them something where they would have something to lose. So we know so much that could be done, which is probably cheaper and more efficient than uh, any penal measure in this area. Nils Christie believes that there are acceptable alternatives in the field of criminal justice. And this belief distinguishes him from those criminologists who have tended to see all reforms as a potential strengthening of society's disciplinary grip on its members. Nils Christie is more hopeful. I do not share the pessimism among man, many of my colleagues when it comes to alternative sanctions. I think some of these sanctions out in the neighborhood that you are in a way sentenced to do that sort of social work or to in the weekends take part in the building of that uh, specific uh, home, etc. That's a sanction with some hope. Uh, it is also uh, this phenomena of boards for conflict solution, uh, which in my view uh, gives some hope. There are many examples of that around in the industrialized world, but uh, they have not been put in systematic use. Uh, 
uh, and I have my doubts also if it will uh, actually amount to very much. But we uh, do at least attempt to do it now in uh, in Norway. It has been become obligatory from this year that all municipalities should have or have access to such a board. And the basic idea is that the police should give them cases, minor cases of what police look upon as crime, and ask the board to find a civil solution. That means to call in the victim and the offender, and that the two should agree how the offender should make it good again. That's the basic principle. And if they so do, then the police would drop the case. The problem, <laughs> interesting enough, has been that the police is also fighting for its turf. They don't like to give cases away to the boards. They want to, uh, even if they claim they are overworked and overburdened, they don't like to let it go to these boards. They want to put it into the criminal courts. But now this seems to change. And my hope, and what I also try to argue for vis-a-vis -vis the boards, uh, is that they should uh, take show initiative themselves. The case is not owned by the police. If they are local, they will know about some local disturbance and they can try to find a solution before the police really finish the case. And if it is a good solution, the police will probably just accept that this was a good solution. And you then get rid of the case. Um, I think it is a need for alternative thinking all the time. But we are, of course, left with the basic problem of the, in quotation mark, dangerous class. So basically, it is a question, could we establish on the basis of our relative affluence a base where work didn't necessarily mean paid work and where people got some standard minimum income? which made it possible to live a more decent life, independent, if any private or public organization gave you that work. Lots of countries struggle with this uh, idea, but I haven't seen it really realized anywhere. But as long as civic dignity depends on paid work, yeah. and there isn't enough paid work, yeah. you're saying we are in trouble. It's going to be a clean enough operation. It is a very, very heavy operation, but uh, it is possible to dissolve the connection between work and reward and monetary uh, reward. We have that situation, of course, for artists. We have that situation to a large extent for other people within the cultural institution. Uh, I get my salary from the state, but that salary has no consequence for the amount of work I put into my work. They could give me the half and I would continue working in the same way. They could give me the double, I would continue my work in the same way. So we have within certain sectors of society examples where uh, we have at least reduced it. And the trouble with this fixation between work and payment is of course that the quality of the work itself uh, get out of it of attention and that we instead uh, measure the work with the amount of money we get out of it so you have in your english language this happy difference between labor and work 
where labor is the heavy, uh, if I've understood it right, and not so pleasant activities. So I used to think that we have to try to arrange the social system so that as many as possible of the activities are taken out of the sphere of labor and moved into being seen as a work or in the German form, verk, uh, something very close to what is created, a creation. Nils, thank you very much. It was a very great uh, opportunity to be able to talk with uh, really some length on these uh, questions. And I hoped uh, Canadian way of doing this could spread to uh, Europe. On ideas, crime control is industry. The last of three conversations by ideas broadcaster David Cayley with Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie of the University of Oslo. Dr. Christie's new book, Crime Control as Industry is published by Rutledge and is available in bookstores. Technical production by Andrew Crump, production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. You can get a transcript of today's program for $7 or the three-part series for $18. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Crime Control, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And stay tuned following the news for Easy Street with Margaret Pachu. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintley.